Absolutely. Give you Don Thies. Call later. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> and nervous. Um, and I am from the Mohican Nation, and I'm from the Coyote Clan on my father's side, and I'm from the Turtle Clan on my mother's side. Uh, and in our culture, uh, whenever you introduce yourself as to who you are, um, you tie yourself to your people and to your clan. And um, um, I'm going to just do something a little bit different because uh, when I see a lot of people, and there's always that time, at least myself, I always get nervous. But uh, fortunately, I have a friend along that I'm going to put up here because then it'll help me a lot. And that's um, my eagle feather. And um, so, <clears throat> uh, this eagle feather has um, has been held by um, hundreds of Indian people that is in recovery. And so it's sort of like a computer. It has all the uh, feelings and things in it. And so then... Um, it just helps a little bit. And then I'm going to burn just a little bit of the sage. And sage in our culture is used for purification and to make calm. And um, so I always have to use this medicine sometimes, whether I'm in front of people or not. So um, this will help some. So with your permission, I would uh, leave that there. It's also in our culture is um, when you are in the presence of an eagle feather, you can't lie. You have to. <clears throat> so my sponsor sometimes says, and they'll put that eagle feather down there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll tell you my best Indian joke till I get over this nervousness. Um, a long time ago in this school up in uh, northern Minnesota, there was this um, kind of a boarding school where they put all the Indian kids. And they noticed, the uh, teacher noticed one day, one of these young Indian boys, he just seemed to be really smart. He just had like a charisma or something about him. And uh, very good in math and science. So this teacher, she was looking at him, she said, you know this little Indian boy, he's going to really go places, but he's got uh, one habit that maybe he ought to change. And she said, what the habit was, is he just lies a little bit. You know, he's not big, but he just twists the truth and changes the call, you know, like a little elky, I suppose. And so um, she said, I'm going to go talk to him because uh, uh, if he could, that'll cause him problems later on. So she sat down and she said, you know, you're bright, you're brilliant and all this stuff. She said, but you got this little habit. She said, you, you, you know, you twist the truth, you lie. So she said, I'd like to work with you to help you straighten that out. So he says, okay. So the next week, he'd lie a little bit and she'd coach him and he'd lie a little bit on this and she'd use some of her psychology 101 and he lie a little bit more. She'd use, you know, 402 and all that psychology stuff. <laughs> so pretty soon, <clears throat> number of weeks went by. No matter what she did, that this little in boy, he just kept on lying. So one day, she's just frustrated. She called him out in front of the class on Friday, and she said, "You know," she said, "I tried everything I know to get you to quit lying." She says, "I, I'm just uh, at my wit's end." So she said, um, "If I catch you lying again," she says, "I'm going to take you to the principal's office." And, you know, no little kid wants to go there. You know, beat me, kick me, but don't take me to the principal's office. So he just took a vow. He said, boy, I promise, I promise, don't take me, don't make me go. So she said, all right, then. So a weekend went by Monday morning. This little Indian boy, come into class, and I'm telling you, he was excited. He couldn't even wait. Walked right up to the teacher. He said, I got to tell you, he said, boy, we just had a real wonderful weekend. He said, just me and my dad. He said, we went off in the mountains. Said we was hiking, had man to man talk, and uh, he said uh, we did some camping. And then he said uh, Sunday morning, he said we went down to the lake, and they said we fished all morning. He said we only caught two fish. He said I caught one fish. He said my dad caught one fish, and he said each one of those fish weighed a hundred pounds apiece. Ah, oh, she said that's it, that's it. She grabbed him by the ear, and she just marched him right up to the principal's office. So she got up there and. Of course, she kind of informed the principal a little bit. So, the principal called this little Indian boy in his office. He said, sit down. 
the little boy sat down and the principal leaned forward by his desk and he said, uh, do I understand you had a good weekend? I had a great weekend. See, my, me and my dad, we went off, you know, camping and everything. Each caught a fish. Each fish weighed 100 pounds apiece. So our principal leaned back and he, in his chair and he kind of put his hands together and he said, you know, he said, there are some times when it's appropriate to fight fire with fire. So he leaned forward and he looked at that little Indian boy and he said, you know, he said, me and my wife went for the weekend. He said, we also had a marvelous time. He said, uh, we hiked and we talked. He said, Saturday night, he said, we cook a nice supper. He said, right after supper, we were sitting in front of our tent and all of a sudden, he said, we heard this noise in the bushes and he said, this huge grizzly bear come walking into camp. He said, that bear walked around that fire and headed right towards us and we were sitting there. And he said, pretty soon we heard another noise in the bush. And he said, all of a sudden, out of the little bushes, this little chihuahua dog come running out into the camp. He said, that little chihuahua dog, he looked at that bear and said, run right over to that bear. He said, jump right on that bear's back. He said, run up by his neck. He said, that chihuahua bit that bear in the neck. He said, that grizzly just dropped down dead. So little Indian boy, he looked at that principal and that principal little looked back at that little Indian boy, you know. Finally, the little Indian boy, he just stood up, grabbed his shirt like this, he said to the principal, he said, I'll have you know, he said, I'm the proud owner of that dog, and that's the second bear killed this month. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Indian, Indian boys are future Elkie, huh? Um... I would uh, thank the committee for asking me to come here. I am um, my first time in Arkansas, and I don't know which is more beautiful, the scenery or the people. Uh, you are just uh, marvelous. Um, but they always say, and I guess for that eagle feather there, is that you should talk about your experience, strength, and your hope. And... Um, I was born on the Stockbridge Muncie Indian Reservation, which is located in Wisconsin. And I was, uh, from when I was about, uh, 10, I was raised by my grandfather. And so, uh, when I got through high school, um, I, um, went to the university. And, um, from the university, I went to work for NASA. And I worked in, uh, Florida during the days that the space program was really going. And uh, when I left the reservation, I had uh, every intention of being successful. Um, that was my intent. And um, I think the best way maybe to tell my story, um, the story is uh, mine because I have permission to repeat it, but I heard the story first and I really related to it when I heard this man tell this story. And um, and it's about my, my bout with alcoholism. I think there's this little thing from the East somewhere where it says, the man takes the drink, then the drink takes the drink, then the drink takes the man. I understand that, that little thing. Uh, and the story was, uh, it goes on, it says that there was this boxing match going on between two people, and in uh, one corner in the white trunks was this uh, boxer, and the boxer's name was Alcohol. And in the other corner... And the black trunks was a boxer, and that was me. And um, the arena was full of people, and everybody was happy. They were selling popcorn and everything. And always, when there was a match like that, they reserved the front row for the special people in your life. And that was where my family was, in that front row. And so, um, as the uh, match started, then pretty soon, uh, at first there was nothing. It was a lot of fun. So me and the alcohol, we were out there boxing, and uh, he'd dance around and throw a couple, you know, never got hurt ever. And I thought, boy, this is, uh, there's going to be nothing to this. And uh, people was kind of paying attention. But then about the third round, all of a sudden, uh, we were out there dancing around, and uh, all of a sudden, alcohol, it just uh, snuck a good punch in. And uh, I kind of jumped back, and the alcohol said, this is just a lucky punch. He whispered to me. And I thought, you know. And, um, and so uh, by the time a couple more rounds went by, then um, pretty soon the alcohol, it was uh, throwing them more occasionally. 
And each time the alcohol would throw that, he'd say, lucky punch, that's nothing. Well, I know that. That was just a lucky punch. But then by the time I got to around seven and eight, then pretty soon the people started to leave the arena because it's really boring what was going on there. And uh, as it continued, you know, I kind of emptied out except for that front row because uh, that's where my family was sitting. And finally, between uh, one of the matches, um, one of my children come up and they said, Dad, they said, you ought to quit this because uh, you're getting hurt. You're not winning. There's nobody left. And I turned, I look at him, and I said, you know, I said, uh, just one more round, because I think I can whip this alcohol, because uh, he told me that I could. And so uh, we got back a couple more rounds, and then a couple more rounds later, uh, really bruised up by then. And then finally, the family come up, and they said, they said, look, at, you know, uh, if you don't quit, we're going to all leave here, because... Uh, this is crazy what you are doing. And I looked at them with determination and I said, just one more round because uh, this alcohol said I could whip them. And I think that I can. And they said, no, if you don't um, quit, you know, we're going to leave. And somewhere during that match, I was back there fighting with the alcohol. They did. Uh, they left. But in that round, the alcohol it didn't just uh, punch. By then, I was on my hands and knees. When that bell would ring, I'd crawl out on my hands and knees, and the alcohol was telling me, you can do it. Just come on out. You know, that was just lucky punches. You can whip me. So I would go out there and take on that alcohol like that. Then that bell would ring, and they dragged me back in the corner, and then the next round, I was on my belly crawling out there. The only thing I could see was the alcohol's is tennis shoes. <laughs> and then finally, even me, I got it. I said, you know something? The alcohol is lying. <laughs> you know? So I left that arena. I crawled out of that arena. And uh, the alcohol, you know, was saying, come back, come back. I said, no, I, I, I hurt. You know, I'm dying. So I got out of that arena. And I was out there for a while, maybe a month or so. And I got thinking, because I was getting in shape again. I said, you know, I think I'll whip his ass. So I think I'll, I'll go back there and try that again. I think that's what we call a slip. So I went back there in that arena, and that old alcohol, he was standing there in the corner, big smile on his face. I said, alcohol, I'm back. He said, I know you would be. <laughs> he says, because, uh, uh, you know, you can do it this time. You're in better shape. you learned a lot of lessons. So I stepped in that arena. They rung the bell, and the alcohol dropped me right to my knees. It didn't mess around. Look in his tennis shoes again. Didn't wait that time. So then I crawled out again. And uh, alcohol said, come back, come back. You know, you can whip me. I said, no, no, I learned my lesson this time. So then I went back out. Then I got thinking about it again. I said, you know, I think there's a couple tricks I ain't tried yet. <clears throat> See, I'll go back in there again. And this time, my alcohol didn't even wait for the bell to ring. <laughs> he just did it right away. So finally, on uh, August 10th, 1978, I left the arena and have not returned back uh, to that place of alcohol. But I do know he's waiting there. The reason I came into AA was because of alcohol. Um, because uh, there was no other place that there, that there was to go. And I came into AA, um, and I didn't like AA at all. Um, in those days, I was very prejudiced uh, in my own way. And I really, at the first meeting, I resented sitting in that room, and it was all white people. I resented that, and I resented them telling their stories. I didn't like that. And most of all, I resented their laughing. I really resented that. But yet there was something of magic in there that I couldn't describe. Uh, today I would describe it as the feeling of belonging. But at that time I didn't know that. But there was something, you see, that kept me there. And I guess it takes what it takes. But when I came in that last time, um, I was ready. 
I started to un- some, understand some things about going to any length, uh, about exactly what did that mean. Because um, I remember I was uh, coming in and out of meetings, and I was in that meeting, and I heard this guy from San Diego. He was talking about how he was seven years sober, and he said, I never needed a sponsor, and I'm seven years sober. And I said, I relate to him. And so I um, tried to do that, but that didn't work either. And it came to the point when I came back in after my last drunk, um, I was really willing to do anything. And so it was this old man that I watched who was uh, in AA, and so I went and I asked him to be my sponsor. And uh, I sobered up uh, in York Street in um, in Denver, Colorado. And um, there was a man there, they call him Big Frank, and uh, he was a very big man, maybe six, seven or something like that. So I went and I asked him if he'd be my sponsor. And he's all scarred up, this guy, because uh, he was no saint either. And so we sit down there and uh, he said to me, he said, um, he said, you know, I have been watching you. He said, coming in and out of these meetings. He said, you don't even talk in meetings. And I didn't. I wouldn't even say my name's Don, I'm an alcoholic. I thought, screw him, I have to say nothing. And so I wouldn't say anything. But he said, you know, he said, I've been sober since 15 years. And he says, I watch you Indians come in and out of here. And he said, you know, most of you guys don't make it. He said, you hang around, sit in the back. He said, I don't know what it is. He says, uh, but most of you, you don't make it. And he had this uh, kind of a jaw, you know, it was just like he was just uh, egging me on. You know how sometimes you take a little puppy and you make that puppy mad, you just rub their face, they rub their face, rub their face, you know. And uh, that's the way he was doing. It wasn't until later on did I know in his infinite wisdom, he was uh, energizing me with about the only thing that I had left in terms of an emotion. And I had a lot of hate left. And I remember he just, he was just like sarcastic almost, you know. And I remember I was thinking to him, I thought, you know, you white son of a bitch, I'll show you I'll make it, you know. But then he said, he said, if we work together, he says, I'm, we may as well get some guidelines going. And he said, uh, in terms of sponsorship, he said, there's some things you need to know. He said, one thing, he says, I'm not, I'll tell you some things I'm not. He said, I'm not your taxi. I'm not your banker. He said, I'm not your motel. And he went on and he listed all of these things that you won't. But he said, there's two things that I will be, that I can give you. One is, he says, I'll be your friend. And he said, by the way, he said, that is not a two-way street. He said, once I decide to be your friend, it don't matter what you say or do. That is my decision. He said, you get mad, you hang up, you leave, you drink, it don't matter. He says, I'll commit to you this friendship. And the second thing he says, I'll commit to you, is he says, I'm sober 15 years. And he says, so I know some things that you don't. He said, I know you don't think that's true. He says, but I do, because he said, you little brown son of a bitch, I'm sober and you ain't. So then, uh, as we continue to talk, he said, there is this book, and he said, uh, in this book, he said, in the front, there's 164 pages, and he showed me how thick it was. And he says, what this program is about, he said, if you do what is in those pages, he said, the rest is good too, but those are stories. But he said, if you do what is in those pages, he said, what this program is about is never drinking again. And uh, he said that in these uh, 600, in these 164 pages, he says, is the program of uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, uh, in there, he said, are, are, are guidelines and steps. And he said, that program is about precision. He said, when it says must, he said, then it means must. And he was very, very clear in terms of what those instructions were. And then he turned uh, to the pages where the 12 steps were. And he said, I want you to look at two considerations. He said, even before you start. He says, because it's about the steps. And he said that the steps was uh, 12 gentle ways, if you do them, about turning your life around in another direction. But he said, you know, alkies, they don't do nothing. They don't, they don't have to. And the worst thing you can do is tell an alkie you have to do it. Because they get a feeling comes up that says, no, no, I'll get you out of it, see. 
So he said, when you, I want you to take these 12 proposals, and he says, I want you to ask two questions as you look at them. He said, first question I want you to ask yourself is, do I want to do this step? So he said, you go to each step, step number one. He said, you read it, and then you ask yourself, do I want to do this? And he said, the second question you're to ask yourself with each step, he says, is, are you willing to go to any length? Then he says, come back and tell me what your answer is. So he sent me off just looking at uh, those 12 proposals, and I was to ask those two questions. I didn't find out till later on. He was such a coyote. He's a trickster, that sponsor of mine. So I come back, and uh, I just looked at those. He says, don't worry about how, just do you want to do them? So you want to go for the deal? And so I come back, and I said, yes, that I do. And so he took a meeting schedule, and uh, he circled the meetings. He said, uh, I will choose six meetings a week that you will attend. One day you have choice to choose your own. <laughs> then he said, um, he said, when you go to these meetings, he said, uh, and he had a little card here on that card. My name is Don. I'm an alcoholic. He said, in case you can't remember. He said, when you go to the meeting, you read that card, or you get it memorized, then you say it. Then he says, you don't say nothing else, because you have nothing else to offer. He said, you just shut up. So I remember uh, I went to meetings, like he said, and I got to this one meeting, and uh, I think what happened is, uh, if I'm honest, there was a woman there. And I thought maybe I would say something that would sound wise, and it would be good for conversation. So I went ahead and I talked a little bit. And you know, sponsors, this, uh, they're like interconnected. I got home, I got home, the phone rang, I says, hello, he says, you son of a bitch, what was you doing talking tonight, you know? I don't know how the heck he found out, you see, but then I, uh, you know, sponsors are like magic, you know, they seem to know that. So as we started into step one, he showed me the pages for the instructions in there for step one. And um, my uh, instructions from him was to go to the meetings, and then he said, these pages, you have to read these pages 25 times. Read it through. Read it through. Because he said, your mind is very bright. It only grasps one or two words. So he said, in your case, you're going to have to do it more. And every time I started to complain, you know, he would say, well, I thought you told me you was willing to go to any length. See? That's like he was setting me up. But you see, it's just like uh, when I would listen in AA, I couldn't, like when they would say you have to work the steps, you know, I didn't know what that meant. I knew how to work in a field, I knew how to work at work, but I, I couldn't understand about this, how do you work them? And they said, well, the instructions are in the big book. And I would look at that book, that book was the most boring damn book I've ever read in my life, <laughs> much less, you know, seen any instructions in it. But then I found out as I, he started to show me where those instructions were. And when I got to step one, uh, he showed me this paragraph uh, on uh, page 52, and that there's nine areas to look at unmanageability. So he showed me how I was to look at that in that paragraph. Look at my personal relationships and look at making a living and see. Uh, so I looked at those nine things. Then when I got that done, then I went on to step two. And he showed me that the instructions to step two was in a chapter called We Agnostics. And I had to read that chapter again and again and again and go to meetings and to listen. And um, I had a I had a very shaky concept of of a higher power. And um it was um it was sort of like uh you know, when you come in, you're not clear on that higher power stuff. And then you hear some people say you that they have problems with higher power stuff and you go, oh yeah, me too, you know, then you get kind of hung up in that. But I, I'm understanding more about that higher power because, um, you know, when I came into, um, into AA, um, I had an experience one night with this higher power. And, uh, I was out, outside of Colorado Springs, there was a garden called a Garden of Gods. And I used to go out to this Garden of Gods, uh, cause by this time when I was drinking, Nobody would drink with me because I was too unpredictable. And I was a blackout drinker. And uh, certain times when I would be drinking, I used to hate cowboys. I got along with them okay when I was sober, but there was just something about those cowboys. I didn't like them. 
And a cowboy to me was anybody with a cowboy hat on. And so sometimes I would just uh, go bust them in the head with a beer bottle or something, just uh, surprise them. And so by uh, people, they wouldn't hang out with me. Then some. I used to go out to the Garden of God sometimes because uh, there was a rock there. And uh, on top of this rock, there was this pine tree. And this pine tree, it was all dead except for about one or two branches. It was almost gone. And as I go to that rock, it was the place I used to take my whiskey, and uh, I would go out there, and I learned to play guitar. Only three chords. I can play any song on three chords. <laughs> so I used to take my whiskey and my guitar, and I would go out there sit on that rock, because me, I, I felt very close to that tree. I said, you have about three branches left, and you're dying, and me too. And so me and that tree, I felt very, very close to it. But this one night, I was out there climbing up on this rock, and um, I had my guitar and my bottle of whiskey, and uh, I got almost to the top of this rock, and I and I slipped, because I used to go out there to sing Hank Williams songs. For those of you who don't know, there are 129 Hank Williams songs, and I knew all of the Hank Williams songs. I used to think sometimes I was better singer <laughs> than Hank Williams. But I fell down this rock, and uh, somehow I... Uh, I got mixed up. You know, when you're drunk, you, you get in a funny position. You have to think first before you straighten it out. So I was upside down. I laid there with my face in the dirt, and uh, I could hear my whiskey bottle was running. And I felt really bad about that. And I looked over, and I saw my guitar was broke. And it was just like I never felt so low. I had been low before, but this one was different. It's like I spiraled down to the lowest feelings that a human being could have of self-hate, powerless. It was beyond uh, anything I have ever experienced. And all I said as I laid there, I just said words. I asked the Creator, I said, you need to help me to live because I'm not going to make it. And something happened in that moment. I don't know what it was. I know now, but at the time I didn't know what that was. And that was a really turning point uh, for me. You know, and you hear this a lot about grace, you know, and uh, it's like uh, my sponsor told me, he says, uh, this grace, he says, you need to qualify for it. And uh, I think how grace works, I think that God has a cupboard, and in that cupboard there's these little clouds, the grace clouds. And they're just floating in that cupboard because every once in a while he needs to use one when you qualify the sponsor, he said, to qualify for grace, you have to be a no good lying, drinking, partying, cheating, adultering, swearing, no good son of a bitch. And he said, any one of those in that list qualifies you for grace. And uh, for me, that's the way it was. It must have been that because that's all I had going. And I think what happens is the creator opens up that cupboard and says, that Indian ain't going to make it, grabs one of those clouds. And he sails it in the air with the right speed so it just stops over your head and gives you enough time, you know, to come into the program and to start to kind of grasp, you know, what is going on in this program. And so um, I took a step two, uh, according to the instructions in the chapter to we agnostics. Then the sponsor, uh, he told me about how to take step three and he showed me those instructions and uh around that part in step three and that there's questions in those instructions. You need to answer those questions. He was very adamant that in the big book when it says a question, then you have to answer that question. You can't just read it. And he's a very precision worker in the steps. Very, very precise. He don't mix up nothing and he doesn't let you mix up anything either. And so uh, I got to that point and uh, I had a tremendous fear about turning my life over the care of a uh, God. I think one of the things I was very grateful uh, early in the program is when I saw the sentence, as you understand them, because that was uh, very important. And um, I heard this story, you know, I couldn't make up my mind, you know, boy, it sounds like, like some serious stuff turning your life over to God, because the ones I saw that was ones that delivered, you know, newspapers and Sundays and all that stuff, and I'd be darned if I wanted to do that, you know. I would do it if I couldn't, if I didn't have to do some of it, you know. But I heard this story, and I couldn't make up my mind. I couldn't understand this third step about this decision. But then, in a meeting one time, I heard this guy and uh, talked. And then we talked after the meeting. And anyway, he said to me, he told me this story about those four frogs. And some of you know that story. But it says, he says, there was four frogs sitting on this log. 
Then he said, one of those frogs made a decision to jump in the water. And then he says, now how many frogs is left on that log? And I said, well, three. He said, no, there's four. He said, there's three green frogs. And then he said, there's this one frog made a decision. But he said, how that relates to the third step? He says, when that frog that makes the decision to turn his life over, he said, then God makes that frog orange. He turns it into an orange frog. So he said, what that means, you have three frogs, there's green, one of those frogs made a decision. So God makes that frog a little bit different. And he says, what that means then, it says, then your ass belongs to God. He said, as you hear that in the meetings, oh, I took my will back, or I give it away, or I shelved it, or I did this. He said, no, that's not how that works. He says, once you become orange frog, you're orange frog. If you get mad the next Tuesday after you make that decision, you're just a pissed off orange frog. But that's where my head was. That's how I learned it. I said, now I understand about that decision, see. <laughs> and so um, I went over to my sponsor's place, and uh, we talked, and um, we decided to take that third step. So me and this old man, we got on our hands and knees and uh, opened up the big book, and he says, how this works? He says, I read the third step first. We hang on hands, and then he said, you read the third step. And that's how that works. So we got on our knees and uh, read that third step. And then he read that, and then uh, I read that third step. And then uh, when we got done, we sat down. And in his uh, home, he had a cat. Now, me and cats have always communicated up to that point. Cats are very, very smart. So cats know I don't like them. So they always stay away. And that was uh, an arrangement we had with cats. But I got done taking that third step. All of a sudden, this cat come running down the steps. And it bounced off the stairs, and it come jump right in my lap. And that cat just uh, rubbed itself, you know, on my stomach like that. And I looked at that uh, that old man, and he just had tears in his eyes because uh, he knew that it was good, you know, that it was uh, something was going on. So uh, to make conversation, I says, "Well, Frank, I says, uh, what next?" And he said, "Well, I'm glad you asked." And he reached behind his chair, he pulled out a tablet, a ruler, and a pencil. And he says, "Next," he says, uh, "We go on uh, to do inventory." And so before I left his place, he showed me a way to write inventory. He said, the inventory comes in three parts, resentment, fear, and sex. And he said, there is a five-column inventory for resentment. He said, a four-column inventory for fear, and either a seven- or nine-column inventory for the sex inventory. And I had to do it in columns. And so I started, and I wrote my inventory. And... um um, as I got my inventory done, when it was done, I knew it was good because he talked to me a lot about the dark crannies. He said, every secret has to be there because that's part of the fifth step. And when it was done, I knew it was good. I knew it was complete. But I had, uh, in my own sly way, I, when I wrote the inventory, I wrote the normal junk. You know, I cheated on my wife. Everybody knew that anyway. That wasn't no secret. So I had all of my inventory stuff there, but there were some of these dark crannies. And I wasn't so sure that I was going to tell anybody. So I put the dark crannies on a special section way in the back of the inventory. <laughs> because I wasn't so sure. Because you go jail for some of that stuff was on my dark crannies, Steve. You're getting some serious trouble. And so um, this one particular night came. I was putting off doing my fifth step. And um, all of a sudden, you know how you get that feeling to drink. That restlessness sets in. And I knew... In a very little while, I either was the fifth step where I was going to drink. It was exactly that. Very often through the steps, it was the alcohol motivated me through the steps. And so um, I um, got in my car, and um, I had to go to a payphone because I was living in a little place. I got kicked out and stuff, so I, was, I had this little swamp apartment, and that was good. Uh, now it was good, but at the time it wasn't. And uh, I called my sponsor, and uh, Jenny said, um, geez, they just took Frank to the hospital. She said, uh, he, he's okay, but he can't be there. And I, you know, I went, oh, no. So I called another number of a person that I uh, considered I could do a fifth step with, and uh, he wasn't home. So I called another person, and uh, this person, uh, he was home. And, you know, it's really hard at first 
a stranger or somebody's kind of a stranger to get that conversation going. The reason I called you is I want to do a fifth step. You know, he's, it's just hard to do that. But in his um, sobriety, he knew what was going on. So he says, come on over. He says, uh, you want to do fifth step, it sounds like. He just sensed that. So we went over. And so uh, we made some coffee, sat down for a long uh, all of my inventory. But I had the dark crannies in my pocket, not in that little folder that I had. So then he said to me, he said, uh, have you told everything? Is there anything else, any dark cranny or any secret that you need to say? And man, I was screaming to say, got it all, you know, we got it all. But there was something inside It says, my God, for once, you know, be honest. Uh-huh. Do it. I said, no. I said, I have some more things. So I pulled out that from my pocket and I had my dark crannies out there and, uh, it was just really hard to say anything. So then he started, uh, you know, sponsors and people have been around the program for a long time. They're very smart in terms of, uh, knowing how to help. So pretty soon he started telling me some of his stuff, you know. He said, well, you know, I remember my fifth step. I did this and I did this and I did this. And he talked about ten minutes and finally, uh, he had told me enough. I remember thinking to myself, I thought, and he had some juicy stuff he was telling me, see? <laughs> so I remember thinking, I said, you know, I, I can do this now. But in my thoughts, I said, you know, you know, all right, son of a bitch, you tell on me, I'll tell on you because, uh, <laughs> so you got the same stuff I do. So then, uh, I got through and I read through that dark crannies and some of it was very tough and, uh, you know, to read that. But he would, uh, occasionally, you know, he would, uh, just put his hand on my shoulders, you know, he'd say, you know, just keep going, you know, you can do this. It's just very, very encouraging. And so I got through my uh, fifth step. And uh, so I went back home, and the instructions, it says, when you get back home, you take the book down. And it, says, uh, it tells you very precisely what to do after fifth step. First, you thank God from the bottom of your heart that you know him better. And uh, I was so arrogant, I guess, that uh, during my first five fifth steps, I wouldn't call God God. I call God Charlie. because. Uh, I kind of named that when I found out you could do that. So I named it after this one uh, person that I had met when I was at the university. I really liked him. And so I just would have a conversation like with Charlie. And I come home and uh, I got thinking about the sobriety business and uh, what was going on with it. And um, see, most of my life, I wasn't used to anything working. You know, you have these little sayings like, if it wasn't for bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. Well, that's, that was my normal little things, and for me to come into a program and have it work, and so I sat down there, and um, I started to just have this conversation with Charlie about, uh, you know, something's going on, and, uh, you know, I am glad to be sober, and uh, then all of a sudden, I found myself getting on my knees, and I was using the word God and Creator uh, for the first time in my sobriety. And I guess for me, out of the fifth step was the most phenomenal thing is I couldn't ever believe about that freedom and about the guilt not being there. That you can remember the story, but there's things that were just paralyzing, um, you know, to myself. Because I was not, I did a lot of bad things again and again and again. And to experience a period of time where that, where that's gone, where you can't even bring it up if you want to. I think that our thoughts are recorded in words, pictures, and feelings. And it seems to me what happens in there is the, God alters the feelings part, that guilt, but I can still remember the words and the pictures, so I'm able to share that story. And so I came out of that, and I had quite a list of defects. And uh, um, that step, you know, step six and seven, those two steps are just very simple, but very, very difficult, you know, in terms of uh, what it asks you to do. And it always seems, uh, I kind of learn by stories, and the stories seem that has taught me the most I learned from AA people. And when I come to step six and seven, I heard this man tell a story one time, and he said, well, six and seven, he said, what that comes to do with the character defects is, he says it's kind of like baking a cake. You know, so you take a pan, and in that pan you put the flour, sugar, and everything like this, and, uh, then he says, when that cake is done, you turn the oven to 350, you can open up the door, and he says, you got to put that cake in there, then you got to leave that cake in there. But he said, what you're doing, he says, you put the cake in there, and then every 30 seconds, two minutes, you open up the door, say, well, how's it going? How's it going? He said, uh, that stove is like God. And he says, once uh, you 
give those defects to God. You gotta let Him bake you. You can't keep peeking in there, you see, seeing how, how is He doing? Cause a cake will never get done. So, that story helped me a lot in terms of understanding about this defect. There was nothing I was to do. I thought I had to do something. But what I found out was that I needed to be willing to have God do it. I didn't have the power to do that myself. I was to put it in there, and then the Creator will bake it. He'll take care of it. So then um, I went on to do my amends. And um, amends is very interesting. I think I had a hundred and some amends, 120 or something amends to make. My sponsor is very adamant that I make those amends um, uh, where it was necessary. And so... Uh, I may, I, what I did is I put my amends in three categories, simple, medium, and hard. So I went up and I tried a couple of simple amends, and, uh, um, they went pretty good. So I said, I'm gonna go choose a medium amend. So I called up that person, made an appointment, and I went over there and made that medium amend. And, uh, when we got done, she says, well, is that it? And I said, well, yeah, that's it. She said, that didn't half the shit you did. She said, let me tell you what else you did. So she went on, you see, telling me all the stuff I did. So I got mad at her, and we got in a big fight, you know. And I said, come over here and make amends. And he's just acting like a bitch, you know. And I said, now i got to do this. And so, but then I went back, and I talked to my sponsor, and, you know, he just shook his head. He says, you know, it's a rare in AA that you have somebody who has to make amends for making amends, you know. <laughs> so I found out that, uh, once again, I wasn't reading the precise instructions in the big book for the amends. I was making them on, uh, you know, confidence. Ooh, I made three. I can do this one. But every amend is individual. And so I got through, uh, those amends. And, uh, even like amends to people I was out of town. He knows of a place downtown Denver where they have a library of telephone books. Can you imagine what that is? So I have to go down there because I said, well, I think this person moved to Arkansas. Then go look it up. See, go find him. He's very adamant that I, uh, made those amends. And, uh, so I went ahead and I did that. I made those amends. And then I came into steps 10 and 11. And, uh, in 10 and 11, um, this is very powerful, steps 10 and 11. But at first it wasn't, because I was very moody, very yo-yo, you know. But I wasn't willing, actually, to do that. But, again, he said, you know, uh, it's very, very precise. It says, on awakening, and it says, it's important that you do these things. One is to ask God to direct your thinking. He said, do you understand the power of that little instruction? Look at what happens when you think. You know, it's not working. You need to get God to direct your thinking. And then ask to be have your day divorced from those three things. That's significant. Then he said, that instruction says, consider your plans for the day. And the way he taught me, he says, that doesn't mean you plan what you do. He says, you plan that day what you're going to be. Because we are human beings and not human being, human doings. So he said, you always look at your intent. I intend to be patient. I intend to be loving. I intend to... So he talked about that in that 11th step. And then it was important during the day um, to learn to pause. And I had a very difficult time pausing when I first came through. I'd always pause after I... After the argument, you know, and I said, geez, I'm supposed to pause. <laughs> so this um, man, he made me a bracelet. And uh, this guy was like a jeweler. And he made this bracelet. And on the bracelet, he wrote these words. He says, the first five seconds are golden. And it was to do with helping me create the habit of promptness. Because uh, I have a very vicious tongue. And, uh, and I enjoy getting even. And I have that skill at that. So then I'd always be remembering afterwards. So I started to wear that bracelet to help. And it's like me. I have about five seconds. If I don't pause then, it's like a little uh, twig grows out of the ground like a stem. In about 30 seconds, that will grow into a big tree, a big resentment. You know, I just... Uh, so I have to handle it when it's very, very small right away. And so that bracelet just helped me to re start to remember to pause and to get that uh, done. See, to remember, to remember, to remember. And so uh, I started to stabilize out somewhat uh, in the 11th step. And then I went on um, onto step 12. And that's kind of my journey through the steps. Um, I choose to go through the steps every year. And one of the reasons for that is my sponsor says that your ego works on where you have your shit together. 
And uh, I have found that that is uh, true for me. Right where I think I'm hot or I'm good, then uh, that's where uh, it's not. So the steps has been very significant in my life. Um, I just saw, uh, before I came out here, I finished, I uh, did my 16th uh, inventory and my fifth step. I fifth step just before I came here. And I fifth stepped with a person that uh, is only about uh, three years sober. And the reason I do that is uh, that's the way my sponsor does. He said uh, that he, he says it's good for you to fifth step. So I fifth stepped this time and this person I had to keep closing their mouth. You know, it's like, you do that? Do you think that? That much? And I says, yeah. I says, that's still that way. But also, it's uh, good for me to do that. You know, there's just something about fifth stepping with a, with a person isn't near your years. It keeps you humble or whatever. And uh, I think that that's good. So sobriety has been uh, very, very significant. Um, as uh, over the years, I have found that the steps is, um, they are so powerful to me that uh, I sometimes I feel like standing up when I hear them read just out of respect. Um, what I do today is um, I have an organization. It's called White Bison. White Bison is the organization that works in, uh, we call it well-briety programs in Native American communities. And um, we use the steps, but it's a little bit different. And I think that's okay because the book says these are suggested things. But one of the things we do in the Indian community, when you work with the elders, they talk about working in harmony with everything. So they say the earth is round, sun goes around, moon goes around, seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter. And so we put the steps in a circle, and that circle is called a medicine wheel. That medicine wheel represents the four directions on the earth, east, south, west, and north. And so now we have learned we take steps one, two, three, and we put those in the east, in that circle. And that's like the sun. So that's like a new day. But that direction and those three steps, they help you to find God. And then the steps four, five, and six, they go in the south. And those are the directions where you find yourself. And uh, then you go to the direction of the west. That's like where the sun sets. It goes down that way. And that's steps seven, eight, and nine. And that's where you find others, the relatives, the brothers and the sisters. And then you go to the north, and the north is the direction of the elders. Steps 10, 11, and 12, the maintenance steps. And then um, I remember uh, when we started to look at uh, just doing it a little bit different. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, you just put them in a circle. It's the only difference. And our, uh, my home group is, is uh, down by the creek group. And uh, that was started by myself and a Sioux man. His name is John B., John's gone to the other side. John was sober 18 years, and then he went and drank again. And uh, then coming back, we started this meeting. First year, so only John and I met every week. And uh, then in a couple weeks into the second year, another Indian showed up. And uh, today, it's about 40 um, it's, uh, in our group. And we, uh, we uh use a circle and we use the sage. We sit in a circle and at first we come smudge everybody with that sage to get calm. And then for the meeting they have the big book in one hand and the eagle feather in the other hand. And then we read like chapter five. Then we hand that eagle feather to each person and let them talk. And we pass that eagle feather around. Because the eagle feather is uh, it stores how you feel in all of those things. And so I started to find, uh, I took the steps to the elders after I sobered for a while, and I asked the elders, in our community, elders is very much respected. And I asked them um, about these 12 steps, and they uh, looked them over, and they come back, and they said, this is one of the few things that the white man has, it's perfect. And so I find that it's the same, the same as our ceremonies, and those things is the same as AA. They're not different, but they're the same. I remember I was four years sober, and um, I don't know what happened. I was just like I lost it. I mean, I had sort of got my life back together, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, just in a period of a month or so, just everything went just crazy. And so uh, I started to withdraw. I said, I hate these meetings. And I sat there, I said, I don't know why they're saying all this shit. 
you know, nobody's making any sense anymore. They're saying the wrong stuff to the new, newcomers. I couldn't pray. The heck with this praying stuff. I didn't want to read the big book. It was boring again. So I felt really crazy. So kind of out of desperation, I went to see this Indian elder who's also in recovery. And I went to him and I said, you, um, sorry, you're really mixed up. So he said, uh, we talked a little bit, but then he said, how long are you sober? Exactly. I said, four years. And uh, he said, well, he said, you're right on schedule. And you hate it when they say that. <laughs> and so um, he went and he took out like a two-by-four. We're sitting on his backyard and he makes a place where he could draw. He took a stick and he drew a circle in the earth. And he said, you need to understand when you get sober, when you get sober, everything that grows, it will always grow in harmony with the big thing. You can only resist it. Then it will, you will feel tension. So he says, the geese fly. Certain time, then they come back. The salmon, they go like this, they come back. He said, also in sobriety, he says, it's the same way that we travel in recovery in circle, not a straight line. And he said, a recovery circle as for the human being, he says, is four years. You have one year of spring, one year of summer, one year of fall, one year of winter. So I said, when you come in, this is not like the seasons outside. This is the seasons inside season. So he says, you come in a program, and the first thing usually other people notice is a life force starts to go inside of you, but you usually don't know it. Just like a tree. A tree is standing out there. There ain't nothing going on. But there's a sap or a life force that's starting to flow inside of that tree. So often we come in, it is other people who sense the change before we do. So they'll kid you. They say, oh, you've got a different hairdo or something? Nah, same old hairdo I've had since the 60s, see. Oh, you got different clothes? Nah, same old rags I've always had. But you'll see they sense something is going on. But have you ever noticed that that moment comes, it might be in the morning, you look in the mirror or something, all of a sudden you notice something's going on. You don't know what it is. have no idea, but you know something's going on. It's a knowing. And so they said during that first year of recovery, it's just like all of a sudden that tree starts to notice little buds popping on its branches. Oh, look at that. Look at that. And you get a job and you keep it. See, this is little buds. You see, you start to pop on a tree. Then you see, you come into your second year of recovery, of sobriety. And then that second year, those leaves by then have unfolded. And that tree takes its shape for that time. And you start to kind of sense who you are, just like that tree has an identity. And then uh, by the end of that second year, you know, you, you kind of think, geez, this is, I'll keep this. This is pretty good. And you think it's not going to get any better. But just like the tree is standing out there, all of a sudden, the leaves start to change. And they get even more beautiful. Red, orange, yellow, fruits, harvest. See, all of that, and that third year, it comes there. And then you start to hear talk. You know, you come in a, you come in the meetings, like small-time people, you know. You hear them. You can recognize them. You see, the, oh, I got up this morning, and the sun was kissing the flowers, and the dew was melting my heart. You know, that's the third year people. They just think everything is good. And you get a new people, you know, they're going, you know. <clears throat> just make you sick. But you see, then that oak tree is standing out there and it thinks, God, this is great. You know, this is really good. Life. But then all of a sudden one day the temperature changes a little bit. The leaves, wind comes along and goes, blows some of the leaves away. And the oak tree says, no problem. So I lose a few leaves. A couple of days later, temperature changes. The wind comes along blows about half the leaves away. And the alky is saying, oh, no problem. But you're inside, you're thinking simultaneously, oh, shit. So you know. So then pretty soon, temperature changes a little bit, and most all the leaves go away. And that oak tree is standing out there, and all of a sudden, you start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. So the elders, they say in that fourth year, it's the year of the winter season. It's neither good or bad, it just is. You see, a tree has to lose its leaves. For the human being, those leaves are our new beliefs, new attitudes, new images, new expectations, new ideas. And we would just hang on to them forever. We would never give them up because that's our power, our clarity. We would never do that. So nature will shift you in the spirit world. It shifts you into another orbit, and then you don't know it. You see, so in the wintertime, we always seek the answer to three questions, the elders say. There's three questions questions always makes us feel connected. One is, why am I? See, in the big book, it talks about that. Why am I? Purpose. What is my real purpose? Real purpose is to serve the great spirit and to help other people. Then it says, you search for your identity. Who am I? So that question must be asked. See, I'm an alcoholic. That's who I am first. Then an Indian. 
and then to my clan. In that order. That's how I looked at it. And then it's where are we going? So we have steps even helps us to determine that vision. You will see like in the sex inventory, it says we set a sane and sound ideal that we will work towards. So the big book is full of visions, full of promises. If you study it carefully, every odd step has a set of promises. Even steps don't. Every promise is, uh, you don't get to promise till you meet the condition. It says, if you take a sincere position, then it happens. If you fifth step withholding nothing, then it happens. They're not, not like free. It's like a game of checkers between you and the creator. He sets her, he says, you move yours, I'll move mine. By a set of laws. And so in a winter time, what you sometimes will experience is you want to withdraw. You get withdrawal feelings like you want to be alone. See, and you'll even sometimes you look at, you look at your own life. And you look at maybe your rug of life, got relationships, jobs, career. You ever notice burnout? You always move on, but after three years, it's time to move on. So all of a sudden you start, things just irritate you. Like you look at your relationship and you'll say, you know, this relationship used to be really great. It used to be fun, but look at him. He just sits on the couch. He don't do nothing but watch football. I don't know if it's alive. See, oh, it granted, it must be alive. See? But you just, all of a sudden you just find life is just really discontent and you want to withdraw. There's like a wintertime prayer. We say to the creator, we say, you know, in that big book it says I'm not supposed to pray for myself. But if you're listening and you would make an exception, I have a list. This is what I would like. One is I like to go off by myself to a cabin in the mountains. I'll take the dog. See, I'm not going to take the old man. Let him keep those kids. I just want to go there by myself. I'll take, um, I'll take, um, books. No TV, no telephone. See, in the winter season, we become very, very reflective, but we cannot answer those three questions either. Why am I? Who am I and where am I going? So the elders say, when you cannot answer those questions, one or more of them, you will appear to be crazy. You, you appear to be insane. So you have tendencies to withdraw. Now, during the winter season, people will do dumb things if you don't know about winter season, like I almost did. Many people will leave relationships and you really didn't need to have left them. Many slip years, four to five, seven to eight, eleven to twelve, fifteen to sixteen. You see? Because that is going on in the spirit world also. You'll see um, relationships also go in cycles. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Every four years, a relationship will go through a time. Now, these seasons are neither good or bad. I think the main advantage I got out of that conversation with that elder has really helped me in sobriety. Because I left there, and I was driving back home, and I was crying, and I said, my God, I'm not crazy. And that's really valuable to know you're not crazy. But is nature's way of getting you ready for spring. I mean, doesn't it make sense? Everything the Creator made goes in a cycle. Maybe we grow in cycles too. Maybe it's not a straight line. That we have to know there's times to renew. That we have to reflect inside of ourselves. And the part of winter season is letting go. So I've learned to work the steps. First three years I go through, I work to establish a contact and to get the fourth set of steps I work at letting go. Except a one thing. Trust in the great spirit. I hang on to that. But I make like a little altar and I put things on it. My relationship. My clarity. Power. AA meetings. Sponsors. Big book. Because sometimes we cannot get something before God. And then Alfie, sometimes we do that. You know, we put something before God. So they say every four years you have to remove all of that so God is first. Because we kind of get off course sometimes. We think all... The reason I'm sober is because the group keeps me sober, or my sponsor keeps me sober, or the book keeps me sober, or no, God keeps us sober. That's who keeps us sober, and not let the other thing get in our way. So, um, uh, sobriety has been very, very good. I have, uh, uh make sure, uh, that, you know, I have not been perfect in sobriety. I have been a spiritual person by my definition of a spiritual person. I believe a spiritual person is somebody who screws up 30 to 50 times a day and keeps coming back to God. And um, it took me... Today we spend our time, we work with the Indian communities all over the United States. Right now we are working with a tribe called the Passamaquoddy tribe up in uh, Maine. And um, um, that tribe is uh, now about 40% sober. I'm about 90%, and uh, but we uh, work a very spiritual process there. 
were the steps there. Uh, many of the teachings that the elders have given, that's uh, what we use there, different type of ceremonies. And uh, I never ever thought that I would see the day as a nice to set and to uh, be directed by God to go participate in his healing and creation. But it's not nothing that I am doing there except going there and listening. Work steps, work steps, work steps. They are the most powerful thing in my mind in the universe in terms of uh, correcting. Um, um, I think if I just kind of sum up, it's, um, um, I never ever thought that, uh, first I never ever thought that I would make it. Um, but I was told if you do this thing in those pages, then you will. It's not about slipping. It's not about drinking again. I don't intend to drink again. I go to meetings. I go through those steps. Uh, I still do those basic things. Read the big book. Uh, I still do those. Um, and I enjoy doing them. Um, my first children, it took uh, many years to repair. Some are still not repaired. Um, I just saw uh, a month or so ago, my oldest son, Dustin, uh, we had a, a real good talk, maybe our first honest talk, because I'd done a lot of damage uh, as I was uh, growing up. I'd been divorced in sobriety. Um, but uh, like they said, it's uh, you won't drink. You don't have to drink, you know, is the thing. I think if I were to say, um, what was the worst thing of all the years of drinking? If I had uh, somebody say, you just can pick one, tell me the worst thing. The worst thing was that hole, that loneliness. And that uh, drove me nuts. I didn't even know what it was. And I did a lot of things trying to fill that void. Um, if you ask me what was the best thing out of sobriety, I would say it's the relationship I have with the Creator. With my great spirit, uh, very uh, easy, very uh, very powerful, and um, so I just uh, kind of pay attention. My life is led by a series of coincidences. It isn't no vision. It isn't clear, but it's by a series of coincidences. Um, and uh, meaning this way is, uh, and I think the book talks about that too. Show us the next step to be taken. It doesn't say give me the whole darn plan. Or like going to the movie, give me a sneak preview. It's not like that. It shows you the next thing that we're to do. And uh, it's sort of like if uh, this one elder, I was trying to ask him about uh, how how do I figure out just God's will stuff? And how do I know for sure? And so we were sitting in his backyard, and he um, went in this little shed, and he got out a little sack of corn that was already shot because he had some ducks and some chickens there. So he threw some, he set them up here. Then he went to add bag of corn, he took one corn out and he walked over on the ground and he just dropped one piece of corn. First, nothing happened. But pretty soon that duck turned around and saw that corn and he walked over and he ate that corn. Then the elder got up and he dropped another piece of corn. First, that duck didn't move, but then quicker this time, that duck walked over and got that corn. Then pretty soon, between the elder and the duck, the elder was leading that duck where it's supposed to go. And that's the way he said the Creator works. As uh, He says, he has a little corn. You can recognize it. It's not like it's a mystery. You've got to look inside. It's a little voice for some, a different way for others. But I have caught on to that system of the corn. And uh, that's how I I, uh, I run that. And so um, I never ever believed uh, that it would turn out so far this way. It's just uh, really an honor. It's through AA, I found my culture. I didn't know what my culture meant, but it was through you and our teachings and the meetings. I find out it's the same thing. Today, when I take the steps, um, before I go through the steps, I go wash myself in the dirt of the earth, because that was a tradition of my people, to come and wash yourself in the dirt of the earth. I take my third step with a sacred pipe. So I load that pipe and I pray in a four direction to turn my life over to God. I fifth step on a sweat lodge. So when my inventory is done, and I fifth step, I go to the sweat lodge, you see, to do these things. Every morning I pray my eleventh step with a, I pray to the four directions. But I burn my stage, I have the shell. The shell represents the womb of the earth, and so it always has the first feelings then. And so I pray every morning for, it's still according to the big book, 
Because I think if I didn't do that, my sponsor would probably figure that out and call on the phone and say, what are you doing doing that fancy meditation shit, you know? You could use that big book. So, so with that, I'll just uh, close with uh, just a little short prayer that I heard one time. And uh, to me, it was very powerful. And that prayer says, uh, God, I says, thank you for what you've given me. God, thank you for what you've taken from me. God, thank you for what you've left me. And what I got left was AA and uh, you people and uh, your wisdom. You are all my teachers. Without you, I cannot stay sober or grow. So it's an honor for me to be here. And uh just want to tell you I love you very much. I'll talk about how your your people are like Indians. They're very friendly. I felt very much at home here. So I thank you for that, and I wish everyone a good journey. Thank you very much.